Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us back here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show. And you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Ruben Torenbeek founded Raw in 2016, looking to do some things a bit differently from the rest of the bike industry. And as we get into here, he started off with a very clear vision of the sorts of bikes that he wanted to build and sort of figured out how to make the company work around that. And well, as we get into here, it's a philosophy that I share a lot of agreement with. And uh, it's a pretty cool episode just with Ruben doing a good job of talking us through how he thinks about bike design, the kinds of bikes he wanted to build in the first place, and how we ended up here. So it's a lot of fun, and we're looking forward to hopefully getting on the new Madonna V3 relatively soon here. But before we get into all of that, I do want to take a quick minute to encourage you to just check out our upcoming Blister Summit in our home of Mount Crested Butte, Colorado. And not only is it the most comprehensive consumer-facing ski and snowboard demo event in the world, but it's a great time with a bunch of really good people a lot of fun a lot of good riding and skiing and panel sessions talking about gear and the outdoor industry and a whole lot more so check out that link in the show notes come join us it's a blast and with that let's get right to my conversation with ruben torenbeek hey ruben great to sit down and chat how are you doing today and where are you today? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing well for a Monday, considering it's a Monday. Doing well. No, I had a good day. Um, I'm currently at home. Um, it's the evening here in Germany, so just had a day of work. Um, but yeah, things are going well. Yeah, well, appreciate you taking the time out of your evening to chat here and looking forward to kind of just getting into it about raw and what you all are up to over there. So just to start it off, I mean, tell us a little bit about the kind of history of Raw and your involvement with the company and how it all came to be, I guess, to start with. Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, um, thank you for having me. It's really cool. I've not done many podcasts, so I'm a little bit excited as well. <laughs> um, but I guess it's the same. I've done a, a bunch of videos over the years with raw uh, so i know that like in the first the beginning of filming it's always a bit more you're a bit more excited but then it'll get better so just try to get there as quick as possible um yeah about so i've i found it raw in 2016 so that's i'd say seven years ago but so actually close to eight years already um i've got a background in mechanical engineering um, I'm from the Netherlands. Um, I've been living in Germany for a while now. Um, but yeah, I studied mechanical engineering. I, I've been riding bikes since I was 12. Um, and pretty quickly, I realized that I wanted to combine the two of studying mechanical engineering, working on bikes. Um, so yeah, during my study in, in the Netherlands, I, I had the opportunity to do two internships um, and I was able to do one at Acros, um, the one that currently I'm mainly known for the headsets. At that time, it was 
everything with bearings. Um, and I did an internship at Ghost Bikes, um, where I also um, graduated my bachelor's degree in engineering. And I worked there for about three years as a bike engineer. did some bits in marketing as well, like technical marketing. Um, yeah, and then I moved on, worked at Scott in Switzerland, Scott Bikes, Scott Sports, but only for one and a half years. Um, it was really cool, but it's not really for me. Um, and yeah, after that, I kind of decided I wanted to work as a consultant working for companies. I just mainly wanted to be able to just, uh, be my own boss or how you say it. Um, so I was like the main driver. I just wanted to have more freedom and do my own thing. And I did a couple of projects. Um, I actually started with another project for Scott. So that was very cool because that worked out well, did a couple of other things. But I also, in that year, I was like, I've, if I were to build a bike, I knew exactly, or I thought I knew exactly how I, how I would build it. And then by the end of 2016, I decided to take three months just for the project that ended up being raw, um, worked on the 3D of the bike, um, but also worked on a business plan. I should I should go back and have a look at it. It's probably good fun to read now. But it yeah, it was the goal of I think it was the end of two thousand sixteen where I set the goal of making a objective <laughs> decision on like going for it or not. Um as objective as it could be. But um yeah, I decided to do it and that was basically the start of Raw. Um yeah, first two, three years were mainly me. <laughs> Um, I had a lot of friends helping out with everything. Uh, so it doesn't feel fair to say it was just me, but on paper, it's just me. Uh, and then, uh, the company has started slowly grown a bit. And right now we're five people full-time in the office and we've got three guys we work with on freelance basis or so a team of eight people. Um, and it's just super cool. We can make mountain bikes. We can all make a living out of it. And yeah, that's kind of in short um how it all came to be yeah that's a good rundown and in the early days when you were conceptualizing raw and as you sort of said there, thinking you had this idea of what you at least at the time thought you wanted your ideal bike to be and how you would go about designing it how did you sort of conceptualize what raw was going to be sort of in terms of design ethos and goals for making bikes and what did that original concept for what you wanted your ideal bike to look like kind of come together as what was that like mm -hmm. um i think a lot of um a lot of raw was driven by a bit of frustration <laughs> um i'm not i'm a pretty skinny guy i'm uh, one meter 82 weighs 63 kilograms. Uh, so it's in, I think it's exactly six feet. Um, I'm lightweight and I kept breaking bikes and going through bearings and like, and it is not just me, friends all around. Like it started to be like people started to ride more and like we started to ride single crown bikes and bike parks. And I just felt like a lot of bikes just, they just weren't up to the task. And I think 
I think a lot of the philosophy or like the drive behind it is not to there's there's never been this like one idea one USB that I thought would make the best bike ever but I've I've always believed that it's I've called it before like a shift of um, priorities in bike design I think there are just like a couple of overarching priorities in bike design that um, yeah that raw has just offered the opportunity for me to get them a little different not like to an extreme but just a bit more focus on durability a bit more on functionality um doesn't mean that design and looks is not a thing or that like carbon fiber is completely out of the question or whatever um people tend to think that pretty quickly that i've got really strong opinions on that um which is not the case like i could I could totally see a really cool carbon trail bike or a cross country bike or looking at a carbon road bike as my next road bike. Um, but it's like, yeah, it's the, it's the, um, it's a, the focus, like a, a bit of a shift in what I think is happening in the industry in general. I would like to think that raw has also like um, maybe helped with that a little bit um just to like there's been a bit of a movement um and definitely not just us there have been other brands like privateer and um other brands that in kind of the same time have pushed that and it means that especially in the first years that every review everything that we heard always about or i heard about my bikes was always like yeah it's good but it's a bit heavy and now we've actually had the same frame weight for the Madonna. That was the first bike, the Enduro bike. Madonna, we've had the same frame weight roughly for seven, eight years now. And now it's actually not that bad. It's actually comparing it to aluminium frames is actually pretty light. And there are even carbon frames that are heavier um, in like the same category of bikes. So yeah, it's like, I think it's a lot of that. And I think it's a lot of like, may sound a bit like cliche, but, it's all just driven by wanting to ride the bikes and the whole group of people that we are now, all the eight people, everyone rides their bikes a lot. Um, we've got three bikes in our lineup, the Jeep Madonna and the Yana. So that's, you could call it a trail bike and trail bike downhill bike. Um, and I think all eight of us have got all three bikes. It's like everyone just rides. And um, yeah, that's definitely what it's driven by. Um, but yeah, hope that answers the question a little bit. <laughs> no, it does. And or good start on it anyway. And yeah, I think that note about weight's really interesting because we've as you've kind of touched on there, definitely have seen, especially for you know heavier enduro bikes and that kind of the bigger bikes, the weights have crept up a bit again and um mm -hmm. you know. But it's yeah. also not just frames. It's like no, right. The whole package, the whole system. Yeah, you know, you're... I think that's also something that people often forget is that frame weight is one thing, but it's like the um, the frame dictates kind of what components you're going to use with it. So I would say like 70, 80% of the bike weight of the system weight is defined by the components. Um, and like the Madonna, the Enduro bike pushes it strongly like towards that gravity side so you will end up with a bike that's not the lightest but actually for that 
for that writing is actually pretty good. Um, but say, uh, yeah. Right. No, that's exactly where I was going with this is that, um, you know, we've seen, you know, obviously people are riding enduro bikes in parks more and pushing them harder. And you've got, we've got a 29 inch wheels. Turns out those way more. We've, uh, you know, people are putting DH casing tires on their enduro bikes all the time. Now people are, you know, you're running heavier, bigger single crown fork stuff like the Z and 38 and what have you that work quite a bit better for the intended purpose for a lot of folks, but they do way more. And we've sort of, it used to be the case that there was this, it felt like a much stronger obsession with weight for those sorts of bikes. And we've realized that actually it's, you know, you can, you can get a lot of performance out of spending a little bit of weight sensibly. And, uh, the fact that that weight add on is really not a big deal. And I think something that kind of we've been banging on about for quite a while at Boyster and it seems like that's reached a greater level of acceptance in the sort of general public consciousness of kind of how you think about bike weight and stuff. Obviously cross country race bikes and whatnot are a whole different ball game and weights certainly much more important there, but for a lot of cases it's not. No. And it's always a, it's, um, it's always some sort of a balance in you, you could build the same one bike with different components, say like light and heavy components, and it would just make it for two very different bikes. Um, and it just depends on what you prefer. And that can even, that's also, I think cool that you, you, just with, just with changing the tires, you can change the bike so much. Like if you have any trail enduro bike and you've got like, say exo maxis exo casing tires that are for me great in winter when it's sloppy and like you're not charging that hard but you just want like things like momentum you want just the bike to go and it just feels a bit more nimble um but then if you put dano casing tires on that same bike on a dusty bike park day in summer you'll be like it's a different bike and that's just with i mean i know tires are not cheap but that's with like a relatively small investment um that can make such a big difference and it just requires a different kind of riding like i can be happy to ride thinner case and tires um sometimes knowing that i have to adjust to it it's like sure i cannot like ride in the same way through the same rock section but that's actually a nice challenge and that will make the bike more lively and like you will get out of corners quicker so it's just it's not one truth, right? It's just, um, it's a balance between what you want out of a bike. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, th I think that's well put. And anyway, sort of to bring it back around to Raw and the original Madonna. So tell us a bit about where you started with the V1 bike and what you launched and kind of how getting things going went. I think one of the big things in the beginning was also the 29 inch wheels. So for me, it was. I just like aluminium for enduro bikes. It was like, for me, it was, I have to say also before that, I, I gathered more experience, working experience with aluminium. Like I've just worked, I haven't done, I haven't got much experience with carbon fiber, but with aluminium, I had a lot more experience. I knew a lot more about how to make a mountain bike frame like that, but I also just liked it just for simple reasons. Like if you, drop the bike and it falls it just scratches a bit but it's not going to have like black magic crack somewhere and um for you putting it on your bike rack and it's just 
it's just easier to work with. And yes, it's a little bit heavier, but turns out just spoke about it um so there was like that that was very clear to me um i never really liked that aluminium was always treated as like the cheap version of carbon fiber there were exceptions which really not first ones there had been high-end aluminium bikes for a long time but generally speaking especially for big brands it was always like carbon fiber is high-end and then aluminium is the more affordable option i didn't like that um 29 inch wheels as well i've i vividly remember the day that i wrote the track slash i actually for for some reason looked it up this morning um what year it was i think it was the slash that came out in 2016 so that was the year i started working on this project and i think i had the opportunity to write it in 15 and i remember it was awful uphill <laughs> i've got long legs and i just couldn't make it work but it was for me it was eye-opening downhill like the off-camber grip and like the way you were standing in the bike that i also i still still think that's a great bike i um i also actually when i looked it up it's like now it's like nine years old and it still looks pretty good um but yeah that was definitely a drive but i really like that i've um that feeling of like being in the bike and the grip of the big wheels and with components rims tires getting better at that time that was it still was a little bit of a risk i remember all my friends being like you sure you don't want to like also offer a 27 inch version so not like mullet was definitely not a thing back then um but just like a small wheel version but what i just wanted i don't need to make at that point especially i just wanted to make that one bike that i thought would be like the bike i would want to ride and i believe that there would be more people that would like it um so yeah there was those were like big drivers on hardware i was very it was very straightforward for me to, how to design it i wanted to like have external seals on all pivots to have like that as a stop before water or dust would come to the seals of the actual bearings um yeah and then just a lot of like practical things like internal cable routing was never an option um for the bb which has also come back a little bit at that time everything was press fit not everything but especially big brands everything was press fit um i think even specialized made that move a couple of years back when they started to go to throw the bbs more again i think they did briefly yeah yeah so yeah it was those for me it always felt like the the drivers for the, the first madonna were very for me very straightforward there's nothing really i needed to figure out there was just like and maybe a last thing that I've always been a big advocate of is like balance in a bike. I've never believed in in like short chain stays being responsible for the bike being playful. Or like it's always the balance between the front and the back of the bike mainly, but also like BB height, handlebar height. Um yeah. That that's definitely something I still think is um is hugely important yeah and just you're saying a lot of things that i like there i mean the emphasis on simplicity and stuff like external cable routing i've been complaining about internal cable routing being a pain for forever still not on board and well especially the whole headset cable routing thing of late is a yet another step in the wrong direction but 
I I think it I think it's like internal cable routing or like internal headset cable routing is well actually that's just bad. There's nothing good about internal headset cable routing. But internal cable routing in general can be done well. And say like on a road bike it makes sense. But the for the majority of enduro bikes, the driver is just that it looks good. I mean we could discuss a long time with the people that design it. But in my opinion, the biggest driver is just that it looks clean. And I think that's just, I don't know, that's just the wrong motivation to do it. Because when, when you need to go work on your bike, you'll, yeah, you'll figure out. <laughs> right. Being able to take your brake off, do a really good bleed with the brake hanging vertically and not disconnect it again is great. You know, you crash rip the brake hose off, just slap a brake on and don't worry about trimming the hose yet, run it long, deal with it later, so on and so forth. There's so many practical reasons that it's nicer to work with. And again, like you said, it can be done well. You can make it quiet. You can get it all to root cleanly if you do a really good job with it. But plenty of bikes don't, and you get rattles and rubbed and odd noises and it's just a lot easier to get it right if you do it all externally make yeah simpler for everyone and maybe also something i've always liked about bikes is that those bikes are such just mechanical devices if you will it's not like a car where some shell covers all the like cool bits (laughs) um you're actually looking at the tool at the mechanical device and i've also never really understood why there's always there seems to be such a um why companies seem to like seems as if they want to like hide everything as if it's like like hidden hardware is like the prime example of that never understood that like a bolt can be so cool and like external cable routing as well if it's done well like if it's like clean and it's like I think it looks cool. It's like when you go look at a car, you go look under the hood or under the bonnet. What did I say? Bonnet hood. And it's just like, that's where the cool stuff is, right? And on a bike, it's right in front of your eyes. And I think that's also like, so I've studied mechanical engineering, but it was, um, it was a study with like product development mixed into it. It was like, um, so I've definitely got that background as well a little bit. And I feel like there are it like a functional bike doesn't need to be ugly. Like you can still make like the lines work and like um there are many details on our frames that are there on purpose and people don't really realize it. But like all if you look at the silhouette of the bikes of our bikes, all tubes have like point in the same arrow direction. So like all tubes always go from like thick in front to thin in the back. Sounds very simple, but once you see it, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. It looks like the bike is going in one direction and it just visually all makes sense. Whereas if you don't, you see the bike and you're like, well, something is off there. But so I, I, I don't even think you need to, um, in terms of design of making a bike look good, I don't think it needs to be compromised. Like, I think you can make a functional bike look aesthetically really good, like to the point where you're just looking at a bike, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Fully agreed. Let's go back to what you were saying a minute ago about 
balance on a bike and liking the feel of being in the bike and so on. I mean, it's one thing to sort of describe that in those terms of what the ride sensations are like, but how do you think about going about making that happen? And what are your sort of general thoughts on geometry and suspension kinematics and whatever else goes into all of that? Yeah, I think it's, I think maybe the summary would be that I don't really believe in extremes. Um, for example, maybe the extremist thing that the Madonna offers that also not many media, no one really mentioned in the beginning, but was the height of the BB. I think the BB height was very low. And I've on purpose not really mentioned it because I actually thought it could maybe go down the wrong way where people would like, because we would like push it or I would push it and be like, hey, low BB is amazing. They would maybe like try to find the the downsides of it quicker. Um, but I think it's been hugely responsible for like the way the Madonna rides. It's like that in bike feeling. Yes, you can, when you paddle, you can hit a rock or a root quicker. Um, it needs some adaptation to that in all like shorter cranks. But that was also like seven, eight years ago, 175 more cranks were standard. Um, and we've at least gone to like 170, sometimes 165. Um, so, I think a low BB with relatively high handlebars, like just a good amount of stack is essential. Um, I think it only works if the front end of the bike doesn't get too extreme and you also have the length in the back. So like that's where it gets a little bit complicated, but if you've got a moderate reach, so on a size large, we've got 480, which is not small, but also not big. Um, but with, a good portion of stack so you just you feel like you're standing up but if you would have a long front end it would mean that it would be really hard so a long front end would be created by a very slack head angle so if you were to have a say like a 62 degree head angle the distance your front wheel moves away from you increases very rapidly and that's where it then starts to be really hard to put pressure on the front wheel um so a moderate head angle with the Madonna V3 we've changed it from 64.5 degrees which we had for like six years to like 64 now so we've gone half a degree down is that correct yes I'm great um I'm worse with numbers than you might think actually <laughs> but like the head angle is not extreme that helps a lot and you just need a little bit of length in the back of the bike because same thing it will the, the weight trip the, the grip of the front wheel is down to weight distribution right so when when you've got a really short rear end it means that a lot of your weight will naturally be on the rear wheel which means not much in the front wheel lacking grip um so i think yeah that is like the it's a bit it's not that hard but also uh a little complicated but that's i think that that relationship between those dimensions just needs to be right um and also between sizes we've now got a double xl um, so we go from size small up to double XL and those like we've never been shy with head tube length like I've never really understood that how a size large or extra large bike would still have a relatively short head tube it, I just don't get it because once you start putting spaces in the stem or uh, high rise bars it will yeah it 
just makes everything worse. It will be flexible, it will also change your geometry effectively because you have handlebars are being brought back, so effectively, effectively your reach gets shortened. Um, yeah, so maybe to summarize, low BB, high stack, moderate reach, moderate head angle, and a longer end. <laughs> That's, that would be my menu. <laughs> yep. Um, pretty good rundown there. And yeah, I mean, the argument I always hear for shorter stack heights is people are like, oh, you can always make the bar higher. But I'm with you that doing that um, has its limitations. You put a big old stack of spacers in your steer tube flexes and the steering starts to feel imprecise. Super high rise bars, you get, I mean, it kind of changes the effect of stem length a little bit and it gets much more sensitive to me to the handlebar rotation in the stem, getting that clocked right just feels harder and weirder and so on and so forth. It's, you know, it's a very imperfect solution to just jam a bunch of stuff to make the bars higher on a bike with a short stack. And so, you know, of course you can go too far. There's, it's not like taller is always better by any stretch, but there's something to, like you said, balance. No, that's correct. Um, it's, it's that balance. And, and then also for a bike that is not just a bike for you, but a bike you want to sell, it's always going to be a, at some point, like a, a middle ground for a certain, like there is always going to be personal preferences. And I don't want to be this too much of a, a sales talk for our bikes, but that's, that was the driver for like with the Madonna V3, adding a lot of adjustability is like, yeah, within like a fine range, especially people that have been riding for a long time um that surely helps actually recently so we were at the in germany there is a event called craft bike days organized by dt swiss um done with mountain bike news german media they had um they did a survey and they found out that the average customer of raw had like 12 or 14 years of riding experience and like all these smaller brands that were there had similar numbers so like all it was from like last bikes nikolai they all like we all had customers that have like 12 to to 15 years of riding experience which is huge it's like just means that we offer bikes to people that have been riding a long time and have gathered a lot of experience and also know like where their personal preferences are or think they are and they can try and they can learn and like, that's very cool that is interesting and yeah we'll get back to the madonna v3 and some of that adjustability in a few but uh before we do i mean i'm kind of curious so you launched the v1 madonna you've described a lot of the thinking that went into it and um you know just what was the reception like i mean at this kind of trying to wind back in my head at this point in time 29ers were around, but certainly not yet the norm for a 160 travel enduro bike. Uh, you were doing some different things with geometry, particularly what would have been relatively long chain stays for that time, and they, that those have crept longer in recent years too, but um, so on and so forth. Uh, kind of, did people get it straight away, or how did it all go from the early days? Mm, I think the well in general the feedback was good I think because like the media feedback had been good um, I think from customers there have been um, 
a lot of very cool people that decided to like go for it because I mean it's a new brand it's like one guy doing that and they were sending me their money to get something they there's not much experience with um I think yeah the feedback has been good maybe at that time it was a bit more of a niche product a bit more like a progressive niche thing where only like a smaller group of people could relate to and at that point I also obviously didn't I couldn't know that like that kind of shift would I mean it's now a, a lot bigger group like it's a lot no one that rides one of our bikes needs to like justify why it's that big or why it's 29 or why it's not carbon for such a high spec bike like um but yeah when I think back the first Madonna had like a two-piece top tube it's like two tubes welded together um it was for the it was a little bit aesthetically but it's a thing i think a lot of bikes did at that time a lot of bikes had like a pink top tube um and i also did it for storage we had like a little bag in the like top tube it's hard to in a podcast hard to visualize one picture do it but that i think looking back and that definitely um was the thing that people stumbled over like most and there are still people who love it who think it looks good but then on the Madonna V2 we got a straight top tube and when I got the first sample I was also like yeah that looks better <laughs> um so yeah that was maybe it's maybe just a detail but that was definitely something that people were not sure about just in terms of looks if it like um the way it looks but yeah I think the bike was received well, but definitely with good reason, a bit more skeptical for the company being new, but also for it being a bit more of like a a niche progressive thing. So, yeah. You know, we talked about, I talked about this with a ton of different folks from a very wide range of companies in here before, just that doing anything new and different is, and getting people to kind of get their heads around it is hard you know you especially if you're a newer company doesn't have the same established reputation and kind of some consumer confidence behind it just from that perspective you know you're doing something different and you need to explain to folks why the thing you're trying is a good idea and that's not always the easiest and so that's kind of why i was asking that question was like just to get at what the how you went about messaging that and I mean, maybe what you said was part of it too, that the people that resonated with were folks who'd been riding for a long time and had some more experience with a wider range of bikes and could kind of see where things were headed. Because I feel like the you were, you know, not alone in doing this, certainly, but setting a template for the direction the bikes were going. And a lot of the rest of the industry has followed in a similar trajectory to one extent or another. And just been interesting to see how that all goes yeah i think what was definitely also the case is i've definitely from day one wanted to make a comp like make a company out of it that would make like would work that's for sure but i i've never had clear goals in terms of a like company size or revenue or whatever i think that has also helped because it i don't know i've i've I think in from that perspective, company perspective, I generally just always look one 
one step ahead. I'm not a big like ten year planner. Um, I don't think that works for what we do. What I do, um, but I think it helped in the beginning because it could kind of naturally go the way it went, and there was no crazy pressure to like. I think the first batch of frames the first year was 100 frames, and like I had to give everything with like demo bikes and demo rides everywhere to like get those sold. But we did it, and like in the first year we sold close to 100 frames. Um, which was very, very cool. And it kind of, the whole financial plan kind of worked, kind of. I didn't have a salary myself yet, but like it kind of started to work. But I think that looking back at it, I think that helped. Um, yeah, and I kind of later in the process kind of embraced the whole company side of it. And I definitely like it now. I kind of, I understand that's like the, the two pillars. Kind of we, as role, we need to have a, we need to have bikes that we love and we know that people will love. Um, but it also needs to, especially now with eight people working here, it also just needs to be a company that pays salaries and, um, yeah, has that responsibility. So, Sure. And as the company grew and you've just expanded and continued with what you're doing, um, Take us through just a bit about how you're thinking on the design of the bikes and expansion of the model lineup and all that kind of stuff has progressed. Because like you said, you've got, well, three bikes now. We're onto the Jib Madonna and the Yala. You're on the third iteration of the Madonna now, or, well, fully V3 anyway. And kind of what's the direction you've been like? Mm, I think the Madonna V2 came pretty naturally because... The first Madonna still works good, and we still have, I think it was a total in those two years of 250 frames we did in two years before the V2 came. And there are still many people riding those. Like I, We still get messages from customers who, I don't know, want a different shock and asking about tunes or whatever. It's still a bike that works well, but obviously there were a lot of details that I could only learn with actually having the bikes being ridden and um so who i would also have to think back but i think the the iterations of the madonna it's kind of the v3 is kind of the fourth iteration because we did the v2 and then the v2.2 um but those things kind of came naturally it was just from learning feedback from customers riding more ourselves um just little things like the v3 can now take a, a dual crown fork it's just one detail but it was something that was not never really on the table but now you see people starting doing it and we would be like hey we haven't actually tested the frames to that so we cannot recommend it but it's good to like take it in consideration for like a next iteration so a lot of those details are just driven by that and then the jib which is the it's a 135 mil travel bike 150 in front it also came very naturally, just like, a, yeah, kind of that. We kind of call it the raw DNA, where it's just like it's a sturdy bike. And I think it works really well in the jib because it's, it's as, well, it's got the little uh, Jack Russell logo as like, it's like the jib logo. And that just came from how it writes. It's like a little Jack Russell. And I think what it makes, where it differs to like, competitors bikes if you will is that it's got that like sturdy 
construction, which just means that when you get into rowdy situations, you never feel like you're undergunned. Like it can be, it can be at like end of travel and you need to hold on to your bars really well, but it never feels like it's flexing too much or like bearings are going to die or like, um, so you could literally ride in a bike park. We push people to do so. Like you might get arm pump a bit quicker, but it's, it's really good fun. So that then came, I think after the second iteration of the Madonna. Um, yeah, and we still got that bike in the lineup. It's just a super fun bike. Um, but definitely a lot bigger project in terms of development, engineering, testing, was the Yala, the downhill bike. Um, so I do, I started, well, I've got my mechanical engineering background, but I don't do all the um, engineering myself. Uh, one of my best friends, Dan Roberts, um, I got to know at Scott. He was also a bike engineer at Scott. Um, he's helped me since day one. Like since day one, I've always like sent him over my stuff. Um, and about four years ago, I think he then also started working officially for us. Uh, so he's one of the three freelance guys, and we do the the bike development together, which is very very cool. And he lives in Champry, um, Switzerland. So that was simply where the idea was born. It was like we want to build a downhill bike to ride Champry. And it's not like we'll only do that, but it was a very clear goal. It's like it's a very specific track and I love it, but it's also very humbling. It's like yeah, in every corner you could pretty much die. <laughs> but it's it's really good fun. You just need to yeah, not joke around from that track, especially not me. Like <laughs> people with more skills will. But yeah, that's definitely been the Yala has been a lot bigger project. That was uh, I was I was definitely also a little scared of the whole project because it's a downhill bike and you know how downhill bikes are going to be ridden. And we had the goal of making a downhill bike that would be ridden in at the World Cups as well, which we it, we already made it happen at, in the first year. So we got samples end of 2022, I think, October. And then the following season, which is... Yeah, the 2022 season. No, end of 21, we got the bikes. And 2022 season, we teamed up with the 555 team from Scotland. Um, and we had, the highlight was that we had Luke Williamson qualifying 16th in Port William and finishing 23rd. Watching him on live stream is unreal. But it was also scary in, especially just, well, during those races, <laughs> it was better to watch it well, um, after the race, knowing that. He didn't crash and everything went well. Uh, but also during development, I definitely had a yeah, big respect for building a bike that people with those skills would ride like that. It's no joke. Like all bike riding is no joke, but downhill racing is on a different level. So yeah, building a bike that would not only suit those riders and would also be fun for like non-World Cup riders to ride is one thing, but also just making it last and... Yeah, so that has been a really cool journey. Um, and yeah, this year has been, so no, we're 2024 now, but 2023 was the first year of selling the Yala and seeing it out in the bike park is amazing. And actually also selling downhill bikes, I was also skeptical of, of like, how many people are actually going to buy a downhill bike still. Um, is it just the people that live in the big bike parks or 
is it actually more? It turns out there are still plenty of people who uh, who love to have like a a single purpose down home machine in the in the basement for like the best days of the year. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna ask about that. Uh, does definitely seem like in general across the industry, sales of downhill bikes faded a bit, and you know, enduro bikes have gotten more capable certainly, but there's still nothing like an actual downhill bike. And along with everything getting better, that's happened to downhill bikes too. So I, I, I talked to a bunch of people who are like, oh, you know, my new enduro bike's just as capable as my downhill bike. And it's like, well, you're comparing to the last downhill bike you owned from 2015. You know, other things have evolved with those yeah. too. It's not like they've been static while enduro bikes got better. It's just different. It's just like, when when I built the first sample, I was it, that was where it, it was very clear to me because it's just like you've got no huge dropper post, you've got no huge drivetrain, and like everything is everything is just like, I like that word of like single purpose. It's just for that one thing. And as cool as it is that trail and enduro bikes are super capable and like you can do anything with them, um, it's also really cool that a downhill bike is just so good for like one thing, if you will, and um yeah that i mean the amount of people that will be attracted to like a uh an enduro bike that's very versatile is way bigger makes way more sense um but yeah people that ride downhill bikes they they know <laughs> yeah right i mean and if you're only going to own one bike sure for a lot of people you know something more versatile of course makes sense but there's, you know, when you're just designing something for a single purpose, like you said, you can make fewer compromises in certain areas and do some things differently. Yeah, and I think it also it also helped us with um, it's just the like you say, it's like the, the the sharp end of of things. It's just that when it works on the Yala on the downhill bike it's definitely going to work in a Madonna and the Jeep. So there have definitely been a lot of like learning small things from the Yala that are now also being taken into the Madonna V3, like the adjustability being one thing. Uh, but there were many details where it's just like, if it works for the Yala and the races can use it the whole season without, the first season I always need to knock on wood when I say this, but the first season we had one frame with a big dent because Luke crashed in a, in a rock section, but you could actually still ride the bike. So it's still okay. Uh, other than that, they've all been all been fine the whole season on one frame in the, in the first season. So it's not like things are unbreakable. There is always going to be a bad world or whatever. But um, yeah, that was a really good stamp of approval. And it surely helps with like, if we know that it works there, it's going to work in the Madonna V3. And yeah, it's good for that as well. Right. Well, yeah, tell us more about that. I mean, you, as you sort of alluded to, you've brought over some details from the Yala to the V3, uh, including the swappable lower shock mounts for that a bit of adjustability. And Yeah. But take us through all of it, kind of. What did you learn from the Yala project that informed the V3 Madonna? And what's changed about that bike as compared to the earlier iterations? Yeah, so... The idea of the Yala was that, again, we didn't want any extremes. We want like a bike 
with like geometry suspension in like a good window where like the majority of people would be like, very happy with it and we spend a lot of time on that it's just like that baseline geometry and suspension we were very very sure of like how we would want to do that or we thought we want until we started testing but from the beginning we also had um had the idea of offering like very small adjustments like the key suspension and geometry um numbers to like offer adjustability and on a downhill bike it's it's even it's like you go to you go to a race on the weekend and you're there for like three four days on one track so it's not like an enduro bike where you're going to like ride everything and go pedal back up but you've got a bike to like yeah you're going to like go for one run on sunday um and the idea of like we ended up with adjustability on chain stay lengths so with different frame sizes, we've got the chain stays growing with the frame sizes. But then from there, we offer adjustability going five mil shorter or longer. Um, we do our own headsets on the Yala for reach adjustment and for head, head angle adjustment and also the combinations. Um, and like you mentioned, we've got a lower shock mount in nine different configurations uh, we offer. Um, that is for three different BB heights and three different progression settings for the suspension and like all the combinations, which makes it like nine combinations. Um, yeah. And we only do very small changes, but it's, it's the effects are pretty big, especially BB height. Anyone on a Madonna V3, I would invite to go and try because th- we do three millimeters up or three millimeters down. So a window of six millimeters. And the difference is huge. It's it's insane. Um, the adjustment of the progression is a little bit harder to notice. Um, I kind of often describe it as like um, I don't want to get too like, too nerdy here, but as like your um, it affects your dynamic geometry. So your static geometry will be the same, but the the position in travel where you will end up with certain impacts will change so if you add progression you will stay higher in travel which means that dynamically your geometry will be more like up um and with less progression the opposite um yeah so we've got all those adjustabilities uh adjustments and at some point we were like we, we were definitely discovering that um for a down bike it works is really good most of our riders ended up with the mid positions, like when it was out of the box, which was a really good, good confirmation. But it was also cool to just the idea of being able to test those same things in the Madonna was, was like enough to go and try it. Um, and then there is just, um, there's just so much like personal preference on, on an enduro bike that, um, yeah, we really think it, it offers like a, um, it offers it offers something for yeah on top of like the the standard geometry so anyone yeah could just get it out of the box as it is i would just give my two thumbs up and you'd have a bike that i'm sure you'd love um but yeah there are people that know exactly what they want and they can go and try which is really cool but we also have people that and now also with the now with the yellow that have ridden it for a season they would be like hey i really like it but 
this and this is happening or I don't feel like in the bike or whatever and what can I change and there is so much you can change on the bike um it's not just frame adjustments um there is just a ton but it's really cool to be able to to like also help those people that are maybe not as technically minded but that we can just be like hey it really sounds like you could have like a better setup with a little less progression but keep the bb height the same uh, for this and that reason um so yeah that's also something for the madonna v3 so even for those who are not technically minded i think like, oh, all those adjustments is too much for me i'll just ride in the mid positions it can still be cool like once you get to know your bike and maybe you feel like something could be better yeah there's just more options to actually get that bike in that direction um so yeah that was a big driver and it's it's really cool i'm really really happy we we made that work on a bike it's not super it's not that easy because it's like the clearances on the frame are super tight anyways with all the shocks and the rear wheel and like the drop the post and so much going on and the water bottle and like and then you try to like make all the adjustments work um that's definitely been a big challenge but it works well and also with a mixed wheel setup it's also something new we do um so it also works very well with a 27 and a half inch rear wheel um yeah lots of options <laughs> yeah and we haven't even touched on the two different rocker link options too so tell us about that exactly yeah yeah but that's more yeah so the that was also a learning with the first madonna um we had the suspension working very well for dan and me <laughs> i think dan weighs about 10 kilograms more than me but we're both relatively lightweight um but we definitely discovered that um i think the bike attracted taller bigger people because it was like a sturdy aluminium bike so i think relatively we had like a speaking we had a lot of like xl customers um and we definitely found that they get into like a to a point where it's hard to set up the shock you just end up with super high spring rates um yeah so that was where because we worked with a 205 mil shock eye to eye with 60 mil stroke to get 160 mil of travel and then the idea was uh the idea came to use 65 mil stroke to get to the same amount of travel and we ended up being able to to offer a second rocker link that offers the same progression uh same travel same anti-squad same anti-rise or like all very very similar to refers so different but like you won't notice the differences um also very important to me is always to emphasize that the progression is the same because i think that's the most common misunderstanding is that we called it the rocker 60 and rocker 65 so one worked with 60 mil stroke to get to 160 millimeters of travel the other was 65 mil stroke to get to 160 mil of travel a lot of numbers it's um but a common misconception i think is that it changes the progression of the rear end it doesn't do that um but it just allows for lower air pressures or lower spring rates because you've got more stroke for the same travel um so we've kind of simplified it a little bit in that we recommend people under 90 kilograms uh to write rocker 60 and over at a rocker 65 um it obviously there's like a big overlap there like people between 80 and 100 kilograms could write both but especially people at the extremes really benefit from it um so that's less of i would say an adjustment option to like 
make the bike work to your needs, but more of like a baseline thing to to make it work for for your uh, rider weight. And yeah, that's that's also one of those things I've never really understood. There are so many bikes out there that are great for lighter people, but just can't be set up for heavy people. And yeah, I don't know how how that works, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I've talked to a number of other engineers from other companies who have mentioned that they are considering doing something similar at some point and very few of those have actually materialized so logistically it's hard Um, obviously it's like sure it still is tough like we need to make a split when we order frames and then swap rocker links and get some extra and like it's not easy but yeah i guess those are just the things that as a small company we can afford to do Right. Yeah, certainly. Much easier to manage when it's hundreds of frames rather than tens of thousands or whatever. But um, yeah. Um, Yeah. But I think that's been a pretty good rundown on what you're up to. And I guess um, just appreciate the chat and appreciate you filling us in on the whole story here. This has been fun. Yeah, it's it's been nice to like also for me to go back a little bit. Right, like we, I think we all just always just look forward, but it's good to rewind a little bit, and it's been fun to to chat and be able to tell a bit about, yeah, what has happened uh, with Raw in the past. So, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to to chat. Yeah, thank you for making the time. It's been great. All right. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would appreciate you leaving us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts to keep the show going and growing. I'd also like to say thanks to Ruben for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.